between when we started our direct to seller business to when I had reached financial freedom and became a millionaire was nine months. Wow. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Mike Dehan, who has a $12 million real estate portfolio and over 300 deals done in a pretty short amount of time. But before we get into his story, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, for those who are always listening to our little check-ins, they might know that I just got back from Mexico and then after that, had a couple days at the house. I uh, got to celebrate Leslie's birthday with some of our friends like in town since we were in Mexico for her birthday, but then hit the road again. So two days ago, came to your neck of the woods. So I'm in Boston, hit a Red Sox game yesterday, got to get my team from work together, which is actually the first time we've got to get everybody together because of COVID. So I'm getting to meet some of the folks that work for me for the very first time, which is really cool. Get to get out and meet some customers face to face. So it's been nice to get back to Boston, especially to escape that Austin heat and to get to Boston during a time of the year when the weather's perfect. So I'm glad to be here. How about you, Cody? Yeah, I've been staying busy. I know I think I mentioned last week, but it's official now. We closed on that flip property. It's on a lake. We're in it for two ninety. We're hoping to put like fifty grand into it, and we're hoping to relist for like four ninety nine. That's just like what the comps in the market are looking like. Fingers crossed that that all works out because then we'll be looking at like close to 150 grand profit, which be a really nice chunk of change. Also been working a lot on the e-printables course, which is the course I have through Gold City Ventures. And there's always changes with Etsy and Canva. So it's like a constant battle of re-recording stuff and updating old lessons. So that's been that's been something I've been spending a lot of time on this past week. But then on the fun front, we finally, for some reason, we've been getting like really good Saturdays up here in the Northeast, but these Sundays have just been horrible. And I love doing what I call Sunday fun days at the lake house since we're only here for three months out of the summer. We have a bunch of our friends come over. People are cooking stuff and having drinks. We go out in the boat. We go swimming. We finally got a beautiful Sunday. So we had like our first official Sunday fun day of the summer, which is crazy. It's like July. But unfortunately, the past like four Sundays has just been horrible. So glad to get our first Sunday fun day under our belt. But Justin, that's enough about us and what we got going on. Let's talk about the guest for today, Mike Dehan. So I had a lot of personal interest in this episode. There's a lot of people that I know who have made a ton of money through wholesaling. You'll learn all about that and what that means in this episode. But Mike like, really, really breaks it down. He shares his full journey from like really grinding to get his first couple of rentals to now. You heard those stats at the beginning. million real estate portfolio, over 300 deals done. He's constantly getting new leads for these wholesale deals. He's also buying rental properties with that wholesale money. Like this guy is just crushing it in the real estate arena. And it was really, really fun to get to pick his brain and see how he does things. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because we got to kind of hear exactly how it all started. Like from when he very first started doing some of these wholesale deals, it's not just somebody you know, maybe we're interviewing who's been in wholesaling for 30 years and maybe some of those details are a little fuzzy or Uh, They came from some big organization where they spun off that was already doing some real estate stuff and they spun off to do their own practice. It's like really where he just grassroots created this own company around wholesaling. And it's insane, like some of the upside that can be there when you're talking about buying a property at 60% of what it's actually worth. And it's also interesting because a lot of these deals, he's already got somebody lined up like well in advance. So the risk is not quite as high as it would be of you going to buy your own property that you're going to have to put some capital into and then hope that, you know, it comes out on the back end without any delays or any price increases because you're not looking to actually fix the property yourself. You're just looking to buy it and directly offload it, which I thought was a really cool concept. So if wholesaling is something you have been wanting to get into or after listening to this episode, you realize, man, this is something I definitely need to look into. You can find more information about Mike, share this episode, do all that at thefyshow.com slash Mike. That is thefyshow.com slash M-I-K-E. Take it away, Mike. Growing up, my family, I mean, they did pretty well, right? Like I didn't come from like a poor family or like an insanely rich family or anything like that. We had the luxuries that we were able to, you know, own a home and take a vacation or a few vacations every year. But how that was passed down to me was more traditional, I guess. So even though I kind of had those luxuries, there wasn't like a financial education that they really taught me about it. You know, it was one of those things that I learned primarily about 
I guess, our financial situation, mostly by comparing to like my peers and being like, oh, well, you know, my parents have a newer car. These people have a older car, right? Or like, oh, we're able to go on vacation. They're not. Or like, these other people are able to go on a lot of vacations. They must make more money. And that's mostly, I guess, what my financial picture looked like growing up. And then a lot of the, I guess, like business side of finance and, you know, the concepts of passive income and, you know, wealth generation, all those things I actually learned myself as I got into adulthood, but it wasn't really a big part of my childhood. And as far as like in the house, was it traditional work that your parents were doing? Was there any kind of entrepreneurialness that you could have picked up from them or family members? So my dad owned a business, right? He had a travel business. And I actually think that even though I wasn't super privy to a lot of stuff he was doing, the drive for financial independence kind of came from him running that because he had this travel business that he ran remotely. This is you know back in the 90s, way before it was cool, before the internet. So I grew up in Montana and my dad's business was actually based out of New Zealand where he was from. And so he managed it across the world. He had an office there and then he moved to the United States after he met my mom and she was American. And so he had this flexibility because he had built his business and his life sort of that way. And that's one of the reasons we were able to travel and do these other things was not only did their business do pretty well and did he have these connections through travel business, but he also kind of could. And I mean, I remember doing things like being in Europe and other stuff with my parents and my dad having to go and take work calls. And, you know, this is like in the late nineties, right? So he had to go and like find a booth and like pay for the long distance calls and like do all this stuff. And he'd be doing work and he was basically digital nomading, but minus the digital parks, it didn't exist yet. <laughs> and so with that being said, what did you expect your life to look like? Did you go to college? Were you expecting to have some sort of career? And obviously it probably ended up a little bit different than what you were anticipating, but what was that original plan? Yeah. So despite that upbringing, I guess the expectation was always that I would go a more traditional path. So going up through school, you know, I started doing like college prep stuff at an early age, like everyone did, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, and started touring colleges when I was a sophomore in high school. And the drive and push from my parents was always to, you know, work hard, get into a good school, get a high paying degree, and that's what you would do. And I never wanted to do that, right? But it was just the direction they kind of pushed me. And I mostly went along with it just because I didn't have like a good alternative, right? Like, Going through that phase of my life, I, you know, played a lot of video games. I had like a handful of friends, not very many friends. I played soccer and I skied. And besides that, like I didn't have a lot of like work ethic or ambition or interests on things that were actually, you know, marketable back then. You know, now I could probably, you know, try to be like a streamer. That's what all the kids do. But that wasn't even a thing back in, you know, the early 2000s, right? I was always going forward with that path. And pretty much what it looked like was as, I had to go through all this process to get accepted, trying to accept all these schools. The first school that I got accepted to, I was like, cool, that's where I'm going. I didn't even bother applying anywhere else. I just pretty much wanted my parents to stop pestering me about it. So I got accepted Gonzaga University, which is here in Spokane, Washington, where I live now. And that's where I went. And when I went to school, I declared for an engineering degree, mostly just because I was good at math and science in high school. And I knew that it would pay well. That's what I stuck with going through school, really. And my ultimate goal was to just gut it out and get through school so that I could get into the workforce and start making money. And throughout that whole period of time, I hated pretty much every part of the engineering aspect of it. I liked the school <laughs> part was fine, but the engineering part I hated. I was just expecting to like it once I got into the workforce. And of course, you graduate, you start working, and that's not what happens. But that was the trajectory to get to my first job. So let's unpack that bit a little bit when you're talking about entering the workforce. What kind of career did you end up in? If you're comfortable, maybe like how much money were you making? And also, I think it's always interesting to get a vibe for, were you like a saver at that point? Was finance even top of your mind at all? Or was it just like, hey, I've just busted my tail for a few years. Let's spend some of this money that I'm making now. I graduated from high school in 2009. Okay. And then I graduated from college in 2013. And so in that period of time, that was right after the recession, right? So the whole workforce was kind of funny. And even when I graduated from college, it was pretty limited, like the number of opportunities that were out there. And I was very fortunate in the way that I was able to get a job right out of college, right? So I got a consulting engineering job at a company out in Seattle. 
And I ended up moving out there. I was making 60, no, actually it was $58,000 a year to start. Moved out there and did all that. And the funny thing was, is I've always been relatively simple, I guess, with my needs and my wants and my day-to-day life. So I was making 58 grand a year. I moved out there by myself. I had a girlfriend who was a now wife who was a year younger than me. So she stayed in college. And it was just me in like my little 700 square foot apartment that was way less than I made, right? My main hobbies were going to the gym and playing video games. And that was what I did for like a whole year. And I just like saved a bunch of money. (laughs) I didn't do a whole lot of stuff, right? I made friends through the gym and those sort of things. But even then, everyone was pretty simple. I do outdoor activities. So I would say that was one of the original places though that I started to get introduced to financial independence, mostly just from talking to some of the older people there. I had a few coworkers that were like in their late 30s and early 40s that were slightly disgruntled, I guess, with their work career. And they were starting to getting into buying rental properties and buying dividend stocks and doing things like that. And so when I originally started investing when I was there, with a lot of my surplus money, I would just pile into the market. And I would just be buying whatever stocks they said were good because I didn't really know any better. But that was sort of my original introduction to wealth generation as I started to make my own money. So this is kind of a cool way to learn about financial independence. I don't know if we've had someone on the show before where they had like two coworkers who were in their late thirties that are like, yo dude, like screw this work thing. We're trying to get out of here. Like, how does that even happen? Do they just pull you aside as the new 20 something in the office and tell you about their grand plans, their great escape? Electrical engineering was my primary degree, right? And I emphasize the electrical part because there's a lot of young people who get into like civil engineering and software engineering, things like that. But electrical engineering was a funny career because there was a huge generation gap in the workforce. So there was a ton of guys that were in like their 50s and 60s. And then there was a bunch of guys that were in like their, I would say like mid 30s. And then there was nobody that was younger than that at all. So even in my graduating class, the total engineering class from GU, I want to say was like 400 people. And there was 13 of us that were electrical engineers, right? So proportionally very, very small. And so when I got there, those two people that I hung out, that I met, they were the other like young bucks at work, right? Even though they were 15, 18 years older than me, or if not a little bit more, right? So we would hang out, you know, eat lunch together, you know, go to the gym, at, you know, during lunch and those sort of things. And gradually those conversations just start to come up. And you know how it is too, when you have people that are into investing in financial independence and they're excited about it, they want to tell other people. <laughs> and oh yeah, and I mean, because I do this now, you vicariously start to see the people that are younger than you and you're like, man, if I was your age, this is what I would do. And this is what I wish someone had told me. So I'm going to tell you this right now. And so it was really organic. And I would say, I don't think I realized how much that impacted me for another six or seven years when I really started to pursue financial independence and wealth generation really heavily. Yeah. That's just about what I was about to ask is like, how well did you like accept that message? At what point did you actually start? Do you feel like making real moves towards between just, I happen to be someone who doesn't have a lavish lifestyle and I've got some excess in my spending to a real intentionalness around trying to retire? That didn't really come around until actually I was in my second job. So I was at that first job. I was there for about two years. I ultimately ended up quitting that job mostly like i guess i started shopping around because i got into this whole situation where it was new years and the entire office was like going to get a drink it was new year's eve you know whatever before the holiday and so i clocked out of work like an hour early and i just like said that i was there on my timesheet and you know went out with everybody including my boss to go there and when i got back to work after the new years my boss called me into his office and gave me a mad lecture about how I'm like stealing money from the company and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, bro, you invited me to come with you. You want me to just like sit here by myself? He's like, you should have planned ahead and like made up for it in the morning. I was like, you know, anyway. So that was my first, I guess, introduction to the whole concept people say of like, your workplace does not necessarily care about you, right? It is a business. And no matter how good of a relationship you have with your boss or the other people in the company, they're going to take the company first, right? And so I ended up shopping around for a different job. I got a job at Boeing about three months later, which was an immediate 35% pay increase, right? So I went from making, I was like 62,000 a year at that point to it was like 78 or 80,000, whatever it was. I got there. I was so excited for that job because that was like the goal place to work in the area. Like if you got a job at Boeing with my degree, you were set, you know, fat benefits, huge pay upside, you know, super cushy work-life 
sort of schedule. And then I walked into that office. I realized within the first 15 minutes that I'd made a mistake. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that it was not what I thought it was going to be. I always remember walking in there and it was just like cubicle farm, you know, 70s, soulless gray cubicles, man. And you could hear a pin drop in there. It was dead silent. And the whole room just had an aura of misery and depression. And it was terrible. I'm not even exaggerating. People that work at Boeing, especially in like some of the facilities that aren't like cutting edge, like you're doing cool stuff, like the place that actually hold the company together are really rough places to work, man. So I started working there and I realized very quickly that I had an insane amount of free time in my workday. So what I would do is just start Googling, how can I make more money? And at that point, I started getting really into financial independence. And I was like, like, like old school financial independence. So I need to save 80% of my income and eat bulk rice and do nothing and just invest as much as I can. If I do that for the next 17 years, then maybe I'll be able to retire off the 4% rule, right? <laughs> and so that's when I started to get really heavily into investing and just like saving as much money and being frugal. So up to that point, you were just investing in, I know you mentioned individual stocks that the, that the dudes at the first company were investing in. Were you doing like the index fund thing? Were you investing in just like total stock market stuff? And I guess how long was that period until you made the pivot to what we're going to talk about a lot today is like real estate and finding discounted deals and how that kind of changed everything for you? Yeah. So that was quite a bit later. So I started mostly in index funds. And then as I would kind of like do the math, I would be like, this is going to take forever. So I started doing silly stuff, you know, like day trading weekly options and, you know, basically gambling. Right. And then I had a few different forays in trying to create different like passive income streams online. So I would do stuff like write affiliate articles and then you know, try to like push traffic to those. I tried to do like a little drop shipping thing for a really short while. And then I had some life stuff that happened. I had a, a pretty bad family emergency where my dad had a stroke and was in the ICU for six weeks. Me and my mom, we lived out of the hospital down in Southern California where he had a stroke for six weeks. And during that whole period of time, I just got calls multiple times a day from Boeing asking why I wasn't at work, even though I cleared it with my boss. And they basically were just hounding me threatening me with action if I didn't return to the office, which I you know, didn't do for a while. So that put me in a bad spiral of depression. Ended up leaving Seattle, mostly just change setting and moving back here to Spokane, where I worked at a different job out here. Did that for a year. And then ultimately after a year, I actually liked working at that company. It was a good place to work. But I just realized that the nine to five sort of lifestyle and the salary lifestyle was not for me. So 2018, I quit. And I just decided that I was going to do anything else and try to figure it out. Real estate at that point wasn't even on the map, but I was lucky in the way that I had been saving a huge amount of money for the previous five years. So I had a pretty healthy 401k, I had a pretty healthy savings account. And I just said, cool, I'm going to quit, live off of my, at that point, wife's income. We cut all of our luxury spending that we had in our budget down to zero and basically just lived off of as frugal of a budget as we could. And I just went to work trying to find what I was going to do. And real estate actually didn't come around even for about another year after that. So I can go into some more details with that or I can jump ahead. I'm not sure where you guys want to go with it. Well, yeah, when you're making that decision to step away, I mean, that's a huge decision when you don't have something to step into. Like you're making yeah. that decision, you know, not knowing exactly what's going to be. You just know you want to find something. Did you give yourself like, kind of a self-contract, like I'm going to give myself three months, a year to figure this out. And this is what success looks like in terms of if I can do this, then I don't have to go back to nine to five. I'm just curious, what went through your mind when you're making that decision? And how did you convince yourself that it was going to be okay? Yeah. Honestly, I think that I was able to convince myself it was going to be okay with an irrational self-belief. Like I was just confident that if I you know, knuckle down on something, I would figure it out. Right. And honestly, the hardest part of that whole transition was having to tell my parents what I was doing, especially because they had the expectation of, you know, me going to school and, you know, especially my mom, she used to have a lot of value in being able to like talk to her friends and say, like, oh, you know, my son's an engineer, like he works at Boeing, he does whatever. And that was a really, really hard conversation. I was very fortunate that my wife was very, very supportive. I remember when I made the decision. 
Like literally I was driving to work. It was one of those days where like, you're just so not into it that you get in the car and you don't even have music or anything on. And you don't realize that until you're like two thirds of the way, like the, where you're going. You ever have one of those? <laughs> you're just like, man. And I remember I was driving and I was like dead silent. I was like four minutes from my office and I called my wife and I was like, I think I need to quit my job. And she was like, and do what? And I was like, I don't know. She said, well, are you going to be happier? And I was like, probably. She said, okay, cool. That sounds great. Wow. I told my boss that I was going to quit that day. And he was gracious enough, actually. He was actually now my business partner, funnily enough. He was one of my best friends from college. He gave me the ability to finish out the year. This was in October. And then I was able to leave in January. Yeah, from there, I just tried to find myself going forward. What I would always tell myself, I guess, was worst case, I could go back to being an engineer, but I didn't really consider that an option. And I was more inclined to just hustle and do anything that I could to make money as opposed to that option, right? So as I was going through that, I made my money through working at a gym that I coached CrossFit classes. So I would just make you know $25 a class and I would do as many classes as I could a week. And then in the evenings, I would drive for Uber Eats and I would just deliver you know meals to people. But my income went from I think when I left my last engineering job, I was like 9,800 something thousand right after incentives to $16,000 in 2018. So basically a you know 90% drop. <laughs> wow. But, okay. So let's yeah. dig into that a bit because that's extremely scary. You're talking about dropping down to a fifth of your income, making $16,000 in 2018. Were you building any of these like what I like to call like longer income generation vehicles like a blog or a YouTube channel or an online course or like some of these things that it takes, it's kind of hockey stick growth, right? It takes a lot of time for it to take off or were you just like really trying to find your footing and messing around with all these more active income side hustles like the Uber Eats and the CrossFit classes? Were you doing anything in the background? Did you, were you pulling any of the master strings? You had some grand plan like in 2019, you know, all of the fruits of my labor from 2018 are going to sprout. We'll be right back after this. Overwhelmed by all the hats you wear in life, Listen in as Eric Fisher talks with productivity experts as they share how they implement practical productivity strategies in their personal and professional lives, exploring all aspects of productivity and its true end goal, living a meaningful life, which is something we focus a ton on on The Fi Show. For more than a decade, Eric Fisher has sat down with productivity experts, authors, and creatives as they share their insights on how to implement productivity strategies in both your professional and personal life. The goal? to help you gain perspective, practical knowledge, and productivity insights for living a whole life that goes beyond the to-do list. Check out the incredibly engaging conversations with Eric and his guests every week, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. Yeah. So I've competed in like fitness and stuff for a long time. So my original goal was to actually go back to school and get into physical therapy and open a physical therapy clinic because I really enjoyed coaching and, and working with people. But then I worked in a PT clinic for, I don't know, about three weeks. And I'm like, this is just like working at Boeing, except I have to touch old people and it's even worse. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not doing this either. I backed out of that. And then from that point, I was just trying to like sort of find any niche that was somewhat scalable and allowed me to have location independence, right? That was honestly my biggest thing was I wanted to be location dependent because I'd read the four hour work week right before I quit. And I was like, I want that lifestyle of where I can have like my muse and I can focus and I can make it something that is, you know, makes me a large amount of income or makes me reoccurring income. And I can have these like mini retirements throughout my life. So that was always my goal. And so my original intention after I left the PT stuff, because like I was trying to figure out how to make that like an online thing as well. So I could like bring the PT clinic online, some sort of stuff. But the Barrett entry was high, like I said, I didn't like touching old people. So it was weird. So I then got into web development and did different kind of like creative web-based businesses. So I did a few things with that. I taught myself how to code. I literally locked myself in my office at my house for like three months. And when I wasn't driving for Uber or working at the gym, I was teaching myself how to code. And so I started picking up some like contract work doing that. And then I started selling websites to local companies. And when I learned that you could sell a website to some of these local companies for like three or $4,000, and then I could go and hire someone to make it for like four or $500, I was like, oh, damn, this is pretty cool. Like that was a business, right? And that whole process, that's what, I, that's what I focused on, honestly, from middle of 2018 until early 2020. 
But in that period of time, I was starting to accumulate some cash and I still recognized that it was very transactional. I had to sell and like market that all the time. There was no reoccurring income. And so through all the books that I would read, real estate was a common thing that would come up in forms of passive income through rental income, right? So I was like, cool, I'm going to get into real estate. I don't want to do any work because I have this web design company I'm trying to build, but you know, they're, they have some new houses kind of close by to where I live. Maybe if I buy some of those, I can just have rental income from that. So I liquidated my corporate 401k, you know, paid all the fees and taxes. And everyone told me I was so dumb for doing that. But I used that to buy these two single family homes that were just around the corner. And at the time, you know, I didn't know how to do diligence or anything. So they ended up making way less money than I thought, right? I was like, oh, if they are going to have a $1,200 mortgage, be able to rent them for $1,600. I'll make $400 a month each. Like, this is easy. But of course, I didn't account for vacancy or property management or any kind of maintenance or anything like that. I took the leap and jumped in with those and started having a little bit of mailbox money coming in once I got them rented out. And that gave me the itch to start pursuing real estate more aggressively. So I started getting into going to the meetups, listening to Bigger Pockets, all the sort of stuff people do. And then at one of the meetups, people were talking about flipping houses and these big checks that they were able to get. And I was like, well, if I want more passive income, I need a larger chunk of money. So I'm going to start flipping houses. So I met somebody who actually met online and was local to me. And they were new and they had money. And I had time outside of my digital company that I was trying to build. And so we decided we were going to flip houses together. When you first started getting into flipping houses, you just mentioned like you just met someone online. Like I think someone could hear that and think that's a pretty big endeavor to get in with somebody. Like you just meet somebody online and decide you're going to go buy the most valuable asset that most people ever get in their lives, which is a home. So maybe you could just walk us through how you found this person, how you felt like you could trust someone. And, and again, this is just another example of like you making this leap that I think a lot mm-hmm. of people would hear just like when you quit your job and you're wondering, man, I don't know how I can like, you know, muster up the courage to do something like that. Yeah. Like I said, the main driver for everything I've ever done, honestly, is just a, you know, maybe a blind belief in myself, right? Just irrationally strong, I guess. But so I, I met this person on the Bigger Pockets forum. You know, they had responded to a post of from a realtor saying, like, hey, are any investors active in Spokane? And this girl, she responded and said, yeah, I'm looking to start flipping properties. I ended up DMing her mostly just to network. And we kind of had similar goals. We were both in the same place starting out. And honestly, it's like misery loves company. We decided to just jump into flipping houses together. And neither of us didn't know we didn't know, but we both were the same level of ambition of like, let's just do it and see what happens. So, you know, like we did all the proper like paperwork and we had agreements and those sort of things. So it wasn't as dicey as you'd expect. And I mean, she was putting up the money. So like for me, I was the one that kind of held the cards at that point, right? If she was given all the money, how did you convince her? Were you doing just all the legwork and you were like, hey, don't worry. I got it. I have no experience whatsoever, but you can trust me. I mean, honestly, <laughs> that's a great question. I have no idea. I think I think we just vibed well, met her and her husband, and we just like started looking at houses kind of together because I had a realtor that I had been looking at. And then coincidentally, they had been talking to the same realtor. And so that gave like an extra level of trust, I guess, there because we had already been sort of in the same circle. And also too, I mean, she knew my background that I had had a decent job in the past and she already knew that I owned some rentals. We just decided to give it a go. And back then this was 2018, right? Like late 2018. So it wasn't as challenging to find deals as it is right now. And there weren't as many people in it. So honestly, back then, if you found someone that was you know, had the same sort of like drive and expectations, you didn't quite have to be as cautious about people being negligent with stuff just because there was less people involved, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of averages, people are going to put more time and motivation into these deals because otherwise they wouldn't be there. There wasn't people that were like, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses and get into real estate investing really at that point. So you had the new houses that you got into first, and then you start getting these flips. doesn't sound like the evolution stopped there. So where did that one take you? The slippery slope of real estate? Yeah, the slippery slope. And I'll say like that my whole intention as I was doing this too was to get into buy more rentals. And I recognized the biggest barrier to buy more rentals was capital, right? So I started hearing about like the Burr method, you know, where you buy and you rehab and you refinance your money out and you can repeat with the same capital. So I want to do that. 
And so, you know, flipping properties was an avenue to get that capital. The first house that we flipped, didn't know we didn't know. After four months and everything going wrong that could have possibly gone wrong, I made about four grand, right? So in terms of like a, you know, hourly ROI, terrible. In terms of the education that I got, it was absolutely priceless, right? But I took that initial action. From there, we flipped a couple more. I think I got like a $30,000 check, $28,000 check, started making some money. At that point, I bought a duplex. Me and my wife, we bought it ourselves. We were able to actually fix up and refinance out our money on that property, which we then rolled into a triplex and we kind of did the same thing. And ultimately what happened was I started recognizing that I knew the process and it wasn't the capital generation that was necessarily the issue. It was the lead flow. And so I started trying to figure out how I could get more opportunities without having to wait for the market, wait for realtors to bring me things or have to pay wholesalers large assignment fees especially on the last deal that we bought the flip together, we paid the wholesale like a $38,000 fee. And I remember seeing the closing statement. I was like, damn, that's $38,000. I feel like should be mine for actually buying this house. So now the focus became, how can I be the person in that position instead of the one that's having to pay that amount of money? And so that led me to not necessarily wholesaling to start, but it led us go and direct to seller. In late 2019, early 2020, I approached my now business partner he was my best friend from college and was my boss at that, that last job that I had. And I approached him, A, because I kind of needed his money because we had a plan for how we, I was going to generate these leads and start finding off-market real estate, but it required cash, right? Which I didn't have yet. Partly that. And then also too, he had an interest in real estate as well. And sometimes when you go into these business endeavors, just you feel like you want to have a business partner. So you don't have to go it alone. It feels less scary. But we started marketing direct to seller. And when we started, our goal was not to wholesale. It was to buy 50 properties over the next 10 years. And then wholesaling came around because as we were going through the process, we recognized that that was one of the fastest ways to generate enough cash to be able to keep buying. So I have an identity, I guess my main business as a wholesaler now, but that was never the intention when we started. It was always to get passive income. Well, I definitely want to dig into finding discounted deals, but before we hit record here, you were talking about how that's kind of become your bread and butter. And mm-hmm. you can find a discounted real estate property and it could be a long-term rental. It could be a short-term rental. You could wholesale it. You could flip it. Like there's so many different things that you can do if you have the skill set. if you know how to get direct to seller, you can skirt around the MLS. Like I have friends who'll be like, there's no deals. I'm like, oh, like, where are you looking? They're like, you know, once a week on Zillow. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be pretty tough to find deals that way. So could you maybe just give a quick lay of the land? Like, what do you mean when you're talking about finding deals direct to seller? Like, how do you get discounted prices that way? Like, how does it work? Basically, what you do is you pull public data that you can access most places. You know, we use a system called PropStream. There's a lot of different places you can pull this data from. And you look for people that have things like recorded bankruptcies, they have liens on their properties, you know, they have code violations with the city, things like that. And then you reach out to them. You know, We do direct mail. Mostly you can call them, you can do whatever you want. And then you engage with them and see if they have a problem that can be solved by you with basically the house being the collateral. So people that like need money quickly, people that have rental properties with a bad tenant that has now turned into a liability for them versus an asset. And what you try to do is you try to buy these houses for 50, 60 cents in the dollar. The funny thing is too, is there's a lot of stigmas around wholesaling about how it's you know, always like trashy people that you're buying houses from, right? Or it's like the really poor, unfortunate people. That's not the case at all. I mean, we've bought houses from people like dentists, from university professors, from other real estate investors that have large portfolios. It's all about if they have a problem that you're able to solve by buying that house at a discount and getting them the money now or relieving them of that liability that they've established. You know, it's become our bread and butter. And I'm really passionate about that because that I think is one of the fastest ways that a nobody, like a one-man show, can go and make life-changing money and wealth in an extremely quick period of time. Right. So when we first started this business, I had my couple rentals that I had worked my tail off to get, right? You know, I had saved for five years to buy my first two single families. I had been flipping these houses where I was working like a dog and, you know, really just beating my body up, doing all the stuff to get my duplex and my triplex from those. And then between when we started our direct-to-seller business to when I had reached financial freedom and became a millionaire was nine months. 
Wow. And the funny thing is, is as a really uncomfortable period of time going through that, there's an incredible amount of learning that goes on. There's a lot of, I would say, investment like that feels not like an investment because you're spending it on marketing and business systems. That's not necessarily a hard asset, but it is a small risk for absolutely asymmetrical upside, right? And that lead generation like portion of it is so, so important. And so many people just ignore that and they instead just wait for the opportunity to come into their lap. And that's cool. You can reach financial independence in like a decade, but if you want it like now, you kind of have to put in that extra legwork and it can really pay huge dividends. That's an awesome sounding way of going about it. And obviously, if you can get something for anything for 50, 60 cents on the dollar, that's a huge advantage in getting out there in front of things before it gets to a point like Zillow where everyone's Mm -hmm. fighting over it. When you talk about you know, mailing these people individually. I'm curious if there's things that you've done to make this kind of stand out where it doesn't just look like junk mail coming through. Like when you're doing this, like you said, kind of a smaller operation, are you actually maybe like handwriting notes? Are you doing something to make it where it doesn't look like, oh, this is just another random thing that they've sent to everybody on my block? Yeah. I'll start this by saying that when we first started this, it took us a while to figure out what we were doing. And from when we first mailed to when we got our first deal was about six months and we were about $30,000 in the hole at that point, right? So that was money that we had spent that we did not know when there was going to be a return on investment on that, if there ever was going to be, right? And we joined a group that like taught us a lot of this is we send letters, right? For the most part, rather than like cheap postcards, a lot of people will send mailers and they'll send like the 30 cent, like yellow postcards. Of course, people throw it away. It looks like junk mail. What we'll normally do is we'll send letters. They're not necessarily handwritten, but they'll like look printed, things like that, in a white envelope that are addressed from a person. Usually it's me or someone on our team. And so it's like a personal letter that they got from like a friend or somebody. So our open rate's extremely high. And then on the inside of it, we have a professionally built business logo, a website, points to reviews, things like they can go on our website, they can see our faces, they can see who we are. And that instantly allows us to stand out amongst all the people that aren't doing those extra steps in there, but are also against the people that are trying to spend you know, 30 cents on a letter or spending like a dollar and 10 cents on a letter. So we reach less people, but the quality of the people that we reach is significantly higher. So that's like honestly the biggest thing that for some reason people like to skip that. And it can be kind of scary when you're, you know, clicking the order form online with your credit card plugged in, but that's what you got to do if you want to actually stand out. And so what does the conversation typically look like? So you send out these mailers, someone's like, wow, someone took the time to send me this nice handwritten thing. I have no idea what this is. It's from Mike. Oh, cool. I don't know who Mike is, but I'm gonna open this up. They look at it. They're like, you know what? I am having so much trouble with this house. Like I just inherited it or, you know, it has this lean, this mechanics lean on it or a whole slew of other problems. They call you up. They're like, Hey, I'm interested in selling my house. And then what's your pitch? Like, why do they say yes? Yeah. So what we usually have in the mailers, you know, we're not going to tell them why we're mailing them. Right. Like we know in our end that they received it because they have mechanics lien on the property. But typically what's in the letter is that's like, Hey, you know, we're investors. We're looking at buying properties in this neighborhood. This house in particular is interesting to us. You know, give us a call if you're interested in selling. Hmm. And then with the customer story too, and this is why I like direct mail versus like cold calling, they have taken the time, they've received the letter, they've opened it up, they've picked up their phone, they've decided to call us. Okay. And typically there's, you know, four different responses you get, right? You get the person that tells you to go after yourself. You're always going to have those, right? <laughs> you, get the, you, you get the person that calls in and says, I want a million dollars for my house. Okay. You get a person that calls in and says like, I might want to sell, but like, what's your deal? And they're kind of skeptical. And then you have the people that call in and basically just like spill all their dirty laundry, right? So the go after yourselves, we usually ignore. The rest of them, what it comes down to the conversation is gathering information and trying to just like hear what their story is and getting to know them as a person. And this is somewhere that I think a lot of people that get involved in this business get lost because they start the business because they're interested in real estate, but at its core, it's not a real estate business. It's a marketing and sales business. And so what you need to be able to do is look past the asset that you're interested in, past the property, and instead get to them as a person. And so we usually go through a whole script where we ask them, you know, why they're looking to sell to us versus a realtor, you know, what's the condition of the house, when do they want to sell it, and all these sort of things. And then 
you go through that process for long enough and eventually people will start to tell you the real situation about why they reached out. You know, keeping in mind that you know that they have something going on because that's why you mailed them because they were on these lists. And then after that, it just becomes a numbers game, right? Where you talk to enough people, you ultimately find people that have enough of a situation they need to sell. And then, you know, you can bail them out of whatever they're dealing with at that point in time. And sometimes it happens very quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. We've had some people that were in our system for years before we got them signed around, before they were willing to sell to us. We've had other people that from when they called into when we have a signed contract is three hours. It varies an incredible (laughs) amount. And the thing that's really interesting about this business as well is what you get paid on the wholesale side. And this is why it's so powerful compared to being like a realtor. What you get paid is not tied necessarily to the value of the property, right? We've made fees as high as $100,000 off of houses that are worth like 300, 400 grand, right? Because we've gotten in at such a massive discount because of conditions of the property, or if there's like an extra development opportunity, things like there. We've also had fees as low as like $2,000 on like half million dollar houses, right? So it's all about how you can negotiate the deal and what sort of situation you're hoping the person get out of or like what sort of development opportunities are there. So it's all about learning to identify that when you're moving the properties. You're using like an interesting word to me in this situation where you're saying fees. So like for those maybe listening who aren't familiar with this, like functionally what's going on? Like the person is ready to sell it. You're not making a profit. You're not like taking and out buying it from them and selling it to someone else. You are, you know, brokering a transaction to someone else and that is the fee you're charging to the ultimate owner. Is that what's going on? Or I should probably explain what wholesaling even is. Sometimes sometimes you get in these things where you it's so second nature to you. So basically what wholesaling is is you get a contract to buy a property with a seller for say two hundred thousand dollars. Let's say the house is worth three hundred fifty thousand. You get the contract for two hundred thousand. You go and you find another investor or another buyer who was willing to buy that property for two hundred ten thousand dollars. And without actually closing on the property, you do what's called an assignment of contract, where you basically the the end buyer pays you ten thousand dollars for the right to buy the contract that you hold equitable interest in. So it's a it's almost like day trading with real estate, honestly, because it's very fast and there's always a lot of moving parts that have to come together really quickly. But what it allows you to do is make very large amounts of money without having to go through the process of closing on the property, getting a loan, fixing it up, holding costs, like hard money costs, any of those sort of things. You can instead just make kind of the quick buck, which will be less than if you flip the house, but it takes three weeks instead of three months. You don't have to risk anything with the actual property on the market. What happens if you've got that contract from the seller, but then you actually don't end up finding someone else who's willing to take on that contract? Are you obligated in any way or is that something you can walk away from? It's just like a traditional real estate contract, right? We have non-refundable earnest money that goes down. So if we fail to close, then they'll get the earnest money. This is where the ethics of wholesaling comes into question regularly, right? And how people treat this depends on them as as a person, right? So there's some people that will have these funky escape clauses and things like that in their contract to let them back out at any time. I mean, we don't do that. We usually have earnest money between $500 to $1,000. We also don't typically lock up contracts if we aren't very confident that we're able to move them because you don't want people getting into a situation where they've like started to move out of the house and then you're not able to perform. So that's been a big thing that we've always tried to do with our business. But also too, one thing I'll say is still going back, we wholesale to generate this revenue, but we still bought an incredible number of properties, right? So between when we did our first deal in May of 2020 through when the market kind of started to turn over in early 2022, I added 53 properties to my portfolio. In that very short period of time, we were able to do that because we were buying at such a massive discount that we could just recycle the capital. And so if we got these properties that we couldn't move for some reason, we just buy them and we just add them to the portfolio. Sometimes you would have to stretch and like get private money and things like that to do it. But we always made sure that we had that as a backup plan in case we weren't able to sell the contract. When you're getting these properties at 50 or 60 cents in the dollar, like it's a home run no matter what you do with it, whether you turn it into a rental property or an Airbnb or whatever, like you already exactly. have that built-in equity cushion, which is just so huge. Because even if mm-hmm. you, you could do like a cash out refi and you have some money that you can then deploy to buy another, like there's just so many possibilities when you're getting these upfront with such large discount. I feel that's a part of real estate that we haven't really focused on much in this podcast. Like we've had so many real estate investors that you know make money, we, but we mostly talk about 
once you acquire the property and on the back end of that process. But yeah, going and doing the dirty work and getting these properties up front at a 50 or 60% discount. I do want to kind of just paint a realistic picture though for listeners, because we might have some yeah. people who are like, oh, this sounds awesome. Like I'm going to go get a list of 10 people, send out mailers, like definitely going to get one of them and make a bunch of money. What's the type of volume that you're pumping out, Mike? Like how many mailers are you sending out for responses? And then, you know, responses to closes. Like I'm guessing it's a lot that you're sending out. Yeah. So our average cost per deal that we close is about $3,800. 3,800. And what is that comprised of? That's about 3,500 mailers per deal closed. And that is with us right now having a refined sales and marketing and follow-up process right? with all these people. When we first started, that number was closer to $5,000 per deal. right? And that's kind of the realistic expectation that we tell people to have. Like When people reach out to me and they want to get started and they're like, I have $1,000, I'm going to start marketing for deals. What should I do? I always say, go make some more money. Like, honestly, go drive for Uber, pick up side hustles, go be a task rabbit, go do whatever you can. Because if you start getting into this with $1,000, regardless of what a lot of the other influencers on you know Instagram and stuff will tell you, you are going to have a really difficult time being successful purely because you're not going to generate enough opportunities. right? And the thing is too, sure, you might be able to find something, but you're also competing with the people like me that are doing this at a level that is much more sophisticated, that has a brand, that has a bunch of five-star reviews on Google. right? And you need to be able to have more numbers if you're going to do that. So that's a realistic expectation, but our average fee is 27500 right? So our average return on ad spend is what's at five and a half. So it's you know very, very worthwhile. And the crazy thing is, is how regular that return is that even now we've been doing this for coming up on what well, is over three and a half years at this point. And it'll fluctuate up and down a little bit, but ever since we started closing stuff, it has been consistent, you know, 27,500 and a half return on ad spend. What about different markets for something like this? Is this something that doesn't really matter where you are, where you're targeting, or could somebody benefit from maybe targeting an area that they're really familiar with? You know, I'm thinking about myself, right? I come from a small town in Mississippi. There may not be as many people targeting this random town from Mississippi. There's enough people there though who might be in this situation. Like, is that a play? Or are you doing this across the country? Just what should someone expect, especially maybe thinking about somebody who's first getting into it? Like what kind of square mileage are they targeting? What kind of markets? Like what are the attributes that market should have? So when the market started to turn in early 2022, we kind of saw it coming. Our biggest red flag was we had these like little lake cabins. I use cabins sort of generously that we flipped that were here in Spokane. They were like 300 square feet. They look like a shed from Lowe's and they were across <laughs> the street from a lake. And we sold these things for 300 grand a piece. Okay. And as soon as we sold those, both me and Dan Bismarck, we were like, this is bad. We need to get out of this market because <laughs> it's going to crash. <laughs> like there's no way this is sustainable. So we started going national, right? And really leaning into the virtual style business. And we started marketing in, in different places around the country. So first we started in Knoxville. Then we started doing some stuff in like the outer Chicago area. The markets we would pick were mostly just based off of we knew people there and we would JV with them. We'd partner with them. So since then, fast forward, we now expanded. We're currently active in 20 different markets, right? That we found like good little niches. And the best markets that we have found are typically those small markets, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly because there's less competition with the exception being if you're in a market where houses are like $30,000, $40,000, right? There's some of those really cheap markets that you find in the Midwest. Those are not very fruitful, mostly just because there's not enough meat to make any money. You know, A roof costs $8,000 in an expensive market as well as a cheap market. And if the house is only worth forty grand, the house is basically underwater. So we actually do some decent stuff in Mississippi with one of our partners there in a town that's I don't know, I think a hundred something thousand people, right? It's pretty small. We've done stuff in like in Montana in several markets out there with towns that are 60,000 people. And the criteria that you just need is, are there rental properties there? And are there people that are actively looking to invest in real estate there? And a lot of people try to go to these markets where there's like huge populations, there's a huge investor presence. Honestly, if you want to do this business, you only need like three or four buyers, in fact, it's almost better because then you can find what their buying criteria is. You can go and find properties that meet their criteria and just sell to them. 
and your business is significantly easier than if you're trying to compete with all these people in this huge market. Makes a lot of sense. I talked to you about wholesaling for multiple hours. You are a wealth of knowledge. You are constantly putting out a bunch of good content. I follow you on Instagram, love seeing your stuff there. But for those listeners who are interested in wholesaling, real estate in general, your story, what you got going on, where is the best place or places for them to connect and get in touch? Yeah. So if you want to reach out to me directly, the best is on Instagram, stepmike underscore invests. I post a lot of content there about the stuff that we're working on and about real estate as a whole. And if you want to hear more about our business and kind of like the specifics of wholesaling and how we run our business, you can check out my podcast. It's called the Collecting Keys Podcast. It's available anywhere. And we have interviews there with other people that are professional investors. We do a business facing show on Wednesday that's me and my co-host talking. And then we do like a kind of like a Q&A show on Fridays. We'll answer a show from a listener. Yeah, those are the best ways. And what I'll leave people with too is I get a lot of people that reach out that say that they want the opportunities, but they don't want to be a wholesaler and learn the tactics, but just don't do it with like a wholesale mindset, right? Like even if all you want to do is buy two or three properties a year, if you're able to buy two or three properties at a 50% discount, that's much better than waiting to buy two or three properties on the market at like full price, right? You know, even if it costs you money to get there, it's going to be absolutely worth your while and it's going to really expedite your steps getting to financial freedom. It's just math after a while, right? If you get a $500,000 property for $300,000, that's $200,000 increase in your net worth right there. It's that simple. Well, Mike, thanks so much for giving us some time. This is a really you know cool topic, a different part of real estate that we haven't covered as much. And it's also just impressive you know, to hear some of the big leaps that you took and the self-belief that that took. Appreciate you giving us some time. And I know the listeners are going to love this one. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.